Greetings. This is Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast Views and Voice Above the Noise, which is hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's podcast is an interview with Deb Henton, superintendent of North Branch Public Schools. In addition, she is currently the chair of the MASA board and recently received recognition as superintendent of the year this past spring. It was a real pleasure and fun to talk to Deb about her role as superintendent, the difficulties she's faced, the things she's accomplished, and her operational style as leader and learner. We all know that there are many books about what constitutes effective leadership, differing leadership styles, and different to-dos in order to become an effective leader. The topic of leadership is as complicated as the number of leaders in our country. Leadership and followership depend on so many things, culture of an organization, the needs of the organization, and the leader as well, political trends, personal matches between style and leadership, and differing philosophies of what a leader is. I actually believe leadership is paradoxical, but that's the topic for another future podcast. In listening to Deb, you will hear several themes. She exhibits the traits that we heard about in the previous podcast with Principal Rob Reitz, who quoted Patrick Lencioni from his book, The Ideal Team Player, in which Lencioni named the attributes that all team members need to have as being humble, hungry, and smart. Superintendents are a part of many teams, and it is a distinct advantage if they are humble hungry, and smart. Deb will talk about those attributes, even though she may not use that exact terminology, she lives and acts those behaviors. In addition, she described herself as, I find myself to be a very common leader, but a leader that's dedicated to service, and I think my record really talks about that, the number of committees that I serve on. But again, it's been an opportunity that has come my way oftentimes for being the only female in the region, and I'm glad to have those opportunities. Deb did not necessarily dream of being a teacher as a little girl. In fact, she wanted to be a hairdresser. She worked at Burlington Northern Railroad for a while, stayed home for a while, and then through a friend, was advised to go back to college. She thought it was a great idea. She got her teaching license to teach social studies and history and recognized that she liked those active high school kids. She loves political science to this day and finds the politics of the superintendency to be an engaging, constant challenge. Deb taught at Woodbury High School and Park Cottage Grove. She was an assistant principal at Stillwater High School and later at Harding High School in St. Paul, where she then became principal. Her leadership skills were recognized by others because she was asked to be executive director of alternative programs at early kindergarten by Pat Harvey, the then superintendent of St. Paul. When Maria Karstarfen became superintendent, Deb was asked to be her chief of staff. Then she was looking for superintendent positions and North Branch was open. She applied and voila, she became superintendent and has held that position for 12 years. She has been recognized as Superintendent of the Year because of her hard work in that position. And this is how she feels about that award. It's just really quite an honor. And I'm so humbled to serve um, and represent my fellow colleagues. Part of her being a leader and a team player is to be hungry, hungry for change and for making a difference. She thinks about how she can do that as she is the now chair of the MASA board. I've been thinking a lot about that. 
I've been thinking about, you know, the things that I have advocated for over my entire career. I always tell people my number one goal is always to raise student achievement. If that isn't my number one goal, I think it is time for me to leave the profession. So I've been trying to think for ways that I can be a voice for raising student achievement that might be different than we have done in the past, or at least join all of the voices that are out there that have been working so hard long before me and people that will work still after me. That's a concern of mine. A concern of mine, too, is the lack of diversity amongst the leadership in the state. And we we recognize that, but we aren't able to somehow or another make things better. And um, so I'm, I'm concerned about that. I will always be concerned about funding. As many people know, North Branch has had a really difficult time with funding. And so advocating at the Capitol for additional funding for all kids is extremely important. So those are the some of the things that come to mind immediately when I look at the future, things that I would like to ad- advocate for. As Deb talks about her role as superintendent and her vision for the future, she is very aware of the political nature of the role. To use a camera analogy, she vacillates from her zoom lens to her wide-angle lens. Sometimes she uses filters on the lenses and sometimes she takes raw pictures. But her looking at the needs of all constituents is apparent in her thinking. To illustrate that point, here is her vision for the role of superintendent. Well, I was just recently on a panel discussion at a university, and a similar question was asked, and I was the only superintendent in the group, and I listened to the principals and directors answer, and I thought my answer was much different than theirs. My answer is that you really, truly have to be at that 100,000-foot level. You have to have the interest of everybody at heart, not just your own building, not just the community, not just the students all of the constituencies. And so it's a leader. My vision is to to lead and to be able to have followers in all of those constituent groups. So it's not just that my immediate cabinet wants to follow my leadership. It's that the students understand the direction in which we're going and the community as well. So my vision for the superintendent is just all-encompassing, that you have to create a pathway to the future that people will follow. And that's a challenge because sometimes that pathway for taxpayers will mean an increase of funding if you're asking for money for specific programming or for updating your buildings or simply for general operations. For kids, sometimes you might be asking them to look at doing things differently. I know we're right now underway with a high school redesign um, study, and I'm not sure what's going to come out of that, but there will be different components that the kids will have to um, probably meet that they're not used to or different expectations. And then the smaller children, too, though they don't maybe necessarily know it's driven by the superintendent, but will be affected by different curriculum. And so it's, you know, you, you have an impact I think across, I know, across the organization and across the community. And it's trying to come up with a vision that that most people will buy into, and that's really a challenge. Educators, politicians, and researchers alike are all looking at our current high schools. Are they outdated? Do they educate students for the complex future? Should we change the models? North Branch is exploring this topic, and here is the backstory to the complexity of the issue. We're in the exploration stage. There's a team of staff that are going out to different buildings, and they have visited mostly metro schools. They will visit outstate schools as well. And just looking at lots of different models, um, I see um, 
right now an emphasis again on technical education, on breaking larger schools into smaller schools. When I was a principal at Harding from 2000 to 2005, Bill Gates um, gave a lot of money to um, the effort of small learning communities. My school alone, I think, had over $2 million. And we, we created academies, and we created themed academies like science and engineering, fine arts. We had an academy for ninth grade. And I see that kind of circling around again. And so um, the team that is coming back continues to come back to making pathways in the high school where kids find the curriculum more relevant and engaging than they do now. And I would not be surprised if they come back with themed academies like I see in many other places. I worry about the size of our high school and whether or not we can support that because when I was at Harding, I had over 2,000 kids and sometimes the population in those academies fluctuates so because kids choose which one they want to go to. Either you call it an academy or a pathway. And with our small with our population in the high school um, which is going down each year and has been since 2005 I wonder if we can support such a model and How large is your high school oh maybe 875 right now at one time almost 1300 nine. yes 912 so the population of students in North Branch has declined like I said since 2005 it's been really a challenge it really hit hard in the Great Recession and we've been trying to recover every ever since there's a lot of building that is planned and much development that's going to occur so I'm hopeful for the future but it's been a difficult 14 years of declining enrollment so with the redesign of the high school I think that maybe they should look at something different than the pathway model and think about project-based learning um, I really am intrigued by that concept and I think you can capture kids um, own personal and private interests and really personalize the curriculum that way as well so it'll be interesting to see what we come out with one of the strands of the MASA legislative platform this last year was a proposal to allow individual districts to have more latitude about graduation requirements what are some of the issues for people around that proposal? What immediately comes to mind is my experience in St. Paul with seven comprehensive high schools, and I'm thinking about how could we have had each different high school having different high school requirements and having kids move across the system. So I think you have to be really aware of mobility and that when you have your requirements that they're fairly global. Otherwise, it will be difficult for kids moving in and out of your system. And I think there are certain standards that all kids should meet, regardless of what district they're in. So the discretion that you should have, the, the, it would be great to have some discretion. But it, again, it would be some discretion because of the fact that you don't have kids in your system K-12. Um, you have some, certainly, and many probably in your system K-12, but you have a lot of fluidity with enrollment. And so I wouldn't want to put learners in a bad position by having been at a, one school or one school district and have had these requirements that they've been working on, and then for some reason their family has moved and not, they're now in a different district, and it would be difficult for them to meet requirements. So I think you have to be really cognizant of, of those types of differences that you would have between your district and another so that you don't put kids at a disadvantage. But I know that people locally like to do their own thing, and they would be glad to have some latitude. So I definitely could support latitude, um, but a reasonable amount. 
What are some of the structural changes that might come about? It might have to do with seed time and not necessarily having um, the same number of hours um, for a course or the same number of credit requirement. That would perhaps look different. Um, it might be delivered in a different fashion. Maybe it's a blended learning model where it's some distance learning and it's some seat time. So I think the instructional model might be different. Um, it might not be a five-day-a-week class that kids have to take. I think that would be welcomed by many districts, especially for seniors, the upper-level kids, the juniors and seniors, um, who don't necessarily need to be in a classroom five days a week and maybe could use a flexible learning space within their school or maybe not even be in the school, be in an apprenticeship or something like that. So I think the instructional model might be one way it would change and then definitely seat time and how much is required. Would, is it time or is it the outcome that we would really look at? It should be the outcome. There's no doubt about that. But the state would, will probably find it difficult to measure how to um, financially follow that student. So that will be the greatest difficulty, I would think, for the state. I believe that staffs and districts can set up, set up accountability measures so that the student who's not necessarily in seat five days a week um, can still demonstrate that they have proficiency in the outcomes that you lay out before them and in the standards they must meet. Um, but I think the state will find it very difficult to give that much latitude to school districts. Not that they shouldn't, but they will... They're bound by traditional ways of measuring full-time student equivalencies and seat time. Ed Week on July 26, 2018, published an article entitled States Loosening Seat Time Requirements. According to the National Governors Association, 36 states have adopted policies to allow districts or schools to provide credits based on proving proficiency in a subject rather than the time a student spends in a classroom. New Hampshire has required high schools to assign credits based on competency rather than seat time. Our own neighboring state of Iowa is working on a way to re-engage struggling students to put them on a path for a two-year or four-year college or career certification by allowing them to prove their ability in certain courses by completing projects, tests, or demonstrations of skills. New Hampshire has gone the farthest by allowing districts to define district-based competencies. However, the state has offered guidance to districts through a competency validation rubric. Some of the other states who have made changes in this direction are Michigan, Oregon, Oklahoma, for example. What are some of the obstacles for us? The public has all been through school as we know it, and they have their opinions about school, and they may still see it as the traditional manner in which they were educated. We know that we have some people that don't think kids should have computers because they didn't have computers. You always hear the age-old debate about cal calculators and whether kids should have calculators. So it's really a formidable task trying to change the public's mind about how long kids need to be in school. You want to be creative with children, but at the same time, you need to be so responsible with children. So you can only push the bar so far before you think, well, am I being too experimental? Are they going to get what they need? So I know that we have tried with efforts to really make stru structures be difficult. Um, I have been on the innovation zone 
um, application committee uh, representing superintendents through MDE, and I've read the innovation zone applications that came through last year, and we're getting ready to gear up for this year again. And the innovation zones are those zones that are doing things like the pathways and the academies, partnering with the post-secondary institution. And so that is our definition of innovation. And I'm not sure that innovation in that manner will reach every single kid. The problem is, is that we don't have enough staff probably in every school setting to meet every kid. And so that's why things go back to the traditional structure, because it's easier to manage. When a teacher, as I told you, when our kindergarten teachers had 28 kids in a classroom, that's so many kids. You have to have structures in place in order to manage the environment. So it's not surprising at all that we continue to revert back. Whether or not we'll ever have the kind of resources dedicated to education, that we need is a very, very large question that I don't know that we'll have answered in our lifetime. Deb is not only concerned about the high school. She is engaged in all aspects of instruction. She's very cognizant of the examples she sets in how she reinforces her strategic plan. She has a great idea in how to keep the goals alive and ever-present in the minds of the school board and her administrative team. In general, she has many ways that she reinforces and demonstrates her role as instructional leader. Uh, what I do as an instructional leader in the district, um, I make sure that I attend the meetings where data is discussed across the whole district. So we belong to a special ed cooperative named SCRED, and each year we have a data review meeting, so I make sure I'm in attendance there. And then I follow up with whatever action plans have come out of there to hold everybody to a rhythm of accountability. We don't just look at data once a year. We look at it more often. And then um, I learn about programs like bar when I had that superintendent contact me I didn't think oh it's just one more thing let I you know started learning about what the program was and then became engaged in that and have stayed engaged in that my principal and I talk about the results of um, their work and how the kids are progressing and so I would say that um, for sure the rhythm of accountability um, has been an important manner for me in which to stay engaged in instruction. So here's another example. All of my school board superintendent reports, my meetings with my staff are all organized according to the four goals of our strategic plan, which are very simple goals. Um, raise student achievement as one. I'm paraphrasing. The second one is um, hold district leaders accountable. The third one is engage the community. And the fourth one is to commit resources to district priorities. So when I have a meeting with my team, the first one, prepare all learners for success in school and life, I have agenda items under there every single meeting. So Twice a month we meet um, and we talk about what we're doing to prepare all learners for success in school and life, and then I report that out monthly at the school board meeting. But not only that, every week I write my school board as a traditional superintendent would be, but I organize my weekly updates to the school board on Fridays according to those same four goals. So I tell the school board what we're doing every week to prepare all learners for success in school and life. So that means I need to know what math curriculum we're teaching. I need to know how balanced literacy is improving or not improving student achievement and for which groups it is improving um, and what direction that we're headed for in the future with regard to all of our curriculum. Um, so I, I would say that I definitely stay in touch and 
and I'm fortunate I have a director of teaching and learning, and I will meet with him twice monthly, one-on-one, to get an update on how things are going. Um, We brought in QComp, and I was a part of that district-wide leadership team for the past I think nine or ten years. We've changed the model moving forward, so I won't be meeting with them as frequently, but I always met with them and heard a report out from them from, from the instructional coaches that are part of QComp, from the district-wide leadership, and also from the building leadership. So it's that accountability, making sure you continually are keeping yourself informed and that others know that you're going to be asking questions. Recently, I uh, um, decided to read a book with my administrative team called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life um, by Marilee Adams, and it talks a lot about making sure that you're asking the right questions, that you're not asking judging questions, that you're asking learner mode questions. So definitely try to ask my director of teaching and learning and the instructional strategies coaches about what they're seeing in the classrooms. Our teachers um, using learning targets. That was an initiative that we put into place like five or six years ago. Where are we at with that? Is that falling off or are we still seeing learning targets being used? Um, moving to the Marzano um, framework for teacher evaluation. How is that being implemented now? This is our first year that will be district-wide. We had pilot teams of teachers using that model. You know, how is that going? Are we seeing an increase of teachers really working on pro protocols, for example. Whatever model or whatever element that we're choosing in the Marzano model to evaluate that year, I will be following up on and asking them what kind of evidence are they gathering to make sure that we are implementing things with fidelity and to see if they're making a change. We have poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into the balanced literacy framework that we have um, in our elementary through fifth grade um, classrooms, and we are seeing some improvement in um, uh, reading scores and some declining in reading scores. And so I know that we have to give that five to seven years before we can make a final judgment on whether or not that was the right curriculum and the right framework for us to use um, to improve literacy. So I think as I talk things through, you can tell that I'm very much aware of what's happening in my district with regard to instruction. 16% of the superintendents in Minnesota are women. The national average is about 21 to 22%. Of course, unfortunately, a lesser percentage are people of color. As a woman in this role or a non-traditional leader, do you see that this role is different for men and women or other non-traditional candidates? Well, people tell me it's different. I always point to my um, first campaign that I had for an operating levy and the chair, the citizens chair of that campaign came to me afterwards and after we got defeated like 68% to 32 or something that dramatic, he said to me, people in our community, Deb, are really chauvinistic. And I thought that was really telling. I hadn't felt that personally, but he was telling me as a male that was what his experience was when he went out to sell the, to sell this that attempt at an operating levy. Um, I have benefited from being a female in the superintendency because oftentimes my colleagues are looking for a woman to serve as a, a, a different voice on a committee or in a, or in a position that um, sometimes women haven't favored or haven't gone after. And so I would say my male colleagues have just been 
absolutely hospitable to me, welcoming, and they reach out to me a lot. And so I've been very fortunate. Um, I was the only female in the area for a long time, so I got to serve on committees that where I was the only woman, but that was okay. Um, I didn't feel any pressure by the men or didn't feel like they were, um, gosh, what's the word for it? They weren't patronizing, and um, they just really did want to hear my voice. And so I think that I have been very fortunate in so many ways. At the time when I started, I was the lone female in the area. And since then, we have had more females join, and that's been great. And my colleagues have reached out to them, and I've seen them take on leadership role positions that um, maybe have always gone to men. So in a lot of ways, I benefited from all of those different um, roles that I have taken on. So do you think that you, your presence in North Branch has made a difference for anyone in the future to be hired as a female in North Branch? I don't think a female will be hired in North Branch after me, but you never know. Um, if you look across the state, not, I mean, males are replaced with males often. Sometimes females are replaced by females, but not real often. It's just um, an oxymoron to think about the number of female educators there are teaching and then the few numbers of females that are in leadership positions. I look at politics a lot because I'm a former political science teacher, and I think that our nation in some ways is ready for female leadership and is still not ready for female leadership. And boards, the same thing. And sometimes that might be community pressure, Sometimes it's just difficult for a woman to walk into an interview and, and know the right way to act. Um, you know, we as women, you know, should we have nail polish on? Should we wear a suit? Should we wear pants? Should we wear a dress? Men, they know to wear a suit. It's not questioned, you know, when they come in in a suit. And a woman's appearance is often questioned, and I know that to be true. Um, and I don't know how we overcome that. That's a societal thing. But I don't think it's something within our own profession. I believe that most people in our profession definitely advocate for people of color and for women to get into leadership positions. But we don't choose. It's the boards that choose, and sometimes the boards have different ideas about who should lead in their community. What do you think we have to do to get more people of color involved in the administrative levels? You have to be very intentional and reach out and be very supportive. And I, I don't mean just an email. I think you have to get on the phone and make a personal contact. I think that is really helpful. And let people know that you really care and you'll do whatever you can to support them. Um, I think general emails or general flyers or things like that, that's not going to get the results that we need. I think you really do have to personally reach out to individuals and let them know you value their opinion, you value their participation, we need their participation, and that you want it, and that it's genuine. It has to be authentic. Relationship building, relationship building between the teacher and the student, relationship building between the administration and between the staff. I know no other way than relationship building. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, being authentic and really reaching out and getting to know the individuals. It's really a difficult challenge when you talk about people of color coming into mostly a Caucasian-dominated um, workplace. I 
have not had an experience where it has been the opposite for me. And so I can't begin to imagine or walk in those shoes, but all I have to, but what I should do as a leader is ask them, what would make you more feel more comfortable? How can I help you? How can I support you? What, what do we need to have in place here that we're missing? Do you notice a difference between your work in North Branch and your work in St. Paul? Well, um, when I worked in St. Paul, I encountered diversity that I had never in my life before encountered. So I was quite naive in some instances. I did not realize the cultural differences that I was facing. And I don't have those cultural differences in, in North Branch because we are so homogeneous. So that would be one of the biggest differences. Um, mobility was yet another um, so I would start out the year with maybe close to 2,500 student names on my books at Harding, and by the time October 15th rolled around, I'd be down to maybe 2,300 and some, and by the end of the school year, 2,100, um, because kids are moving, oftentimes just moving within the system, um, but definitely much more mobility than um, kids have at um, North Branch during the year. They don't move as much during the year as the kids did in um, um, St. Paul. It was wonderful to work with such a large immigrant population in St. Paul. I had volunteered Harding to be called a level one site. It was at the time where the kids with the least amount of um, English came and we had quite a large EL staff, and I really enjoyed working with the new immigrant students. Um, they are so excited, engaged, happy to be um, for the most part in America and all that we have to offer is in front of them and they know that and they reach out as hard as they can to grasp as much as they can and so that was wonderful and we don't have new immigrants generally coming to North Branch in very great numbers we have a few annually but not like we had when I was in St. Paul the Karen population was new when I was in St. Paul and um, so I really miss that aspect of working in the cities. What do you see as some of the challenges for education in the future? The future of education is going to be very difficult in trying to engage kids in the traditional kinds of curriculum that we have in the past. And if we don't change, um, as we know, we're going to lose some of those kids in greater numbers than we already do lose kids. So I think that will be difficult. And the speed of change is so um, incredible. The wonderful thing about moving forward is you can always have the answer to something if you have a digital device in your hands. You can talk to your friends, the kids can have questions, and they can look up the answers right away and know the direction if they want it. My stepfather said to me, kids are not reading very much these days, and I said, oh, not true. They're reading all the time. They're on their digital devices reading might be reading texts from their friends or news bits, but they're reading a lot. We just have them reading in a different in a different manner than many people are used to. So I think moving forward, trying to plan five years in, in the future is just going to be extremely difficult. We are moving away from a five-year strategic plan model to a two-year continuous improvement model, working on the current year and maybe one year ahead um, because we... We're just not sure what's out there in five years. So I think being able to gauge the future has always been difficult for pe people that have been in our profession previously, and it will become even more so with the, the speed of change. What types of characteristics will future leaders need to have? 
flexibility and the willingness to be a learning leader, to not be stuck in the past, and to not be, you know, not to jump for every new fad, that's for sure, but to be able to discriminate what might work and what might not, what the community needs, again, always having that in the back of your mind and what your students and your and your staff need. But you, you need to be flexible and you need to be a learning leader. You need to be well-read, well-connected. I think you need to network very much so with your colleagues to see what's happening and, and what they're thinking about, what they're reading, just that flexibility. And then also to be willing to be a global learner, not just stuck in your small environment or your state environment or your national environment because our kids are definitely living in a global society and a technical one as well. What type of training do universities and colleges need to do to give us the administrators that we need in this future world? Well, first, I think they need to train people on relationship building and emotional intelligence before you get to anything else. Because if the staff in front of the kids are not able to build relationships with even the most challenging child, then we as administrators are going to be looking at them and saying, you're not a right fit. So I think the universities have to do a lot of training around emotional intelligence and relationship building to make sure that the people that are going into the profession have the stamina, the willpower, the desire, and are dedicated enough to raising student achievement for every single student, no matter how difficult that must be before they can even worry about the technical side. Now, how do you do that? I'm not sure how you do that. But I know from being at universities enough throughout the year, given the panels that I speak on and the number of teachers that I see from our profession that are trying to make sure that the new administrative candidates have the kind of instruction that they deserve and they need to have to be successful when they come into our environment, that... It's possible. You just have to have small groups of those students. And I, I do see that the classes are not gigantic. And so it's incumbent upon those people that are instructing to be able to discover through whatever book they're reading, whatever discussions they're having in class, whether or not they are that they are working with people that have what it takes to be successful in the classroom. They have to have listen-fors. They have to be listening for whether or not people are passing judgments on different types of learners, whether or not people are being open to different types of teaching and different methods of teaching, or whether they're just stuck in the past, whether they have preconceived notions about what teaching is. Because I think we, I know we all had preconceived notions, but... Um, they, I think it's just really the job of the universities to be to have to have the tough conversations with candidates that they don't think are going to work out. What advice would you give to people who are considering looking at the profession of becoming a superintendent? Well, the superintendency is um, it's a wonderful job, and I encourage people to definitely take the opportunity if it comes their way and apply for the position and hopefully you will get accepted to be in the position. But it's not a job that is an easy one. No jobs in education I don't think are easy anymore, or maybe never were. But I think the superintendent position is becoming more and more political, and so if you're not politically minded, that might be hard for you to navigate those waters. Um, and if you're a person that is not willing to change or used to change. I think that might be a profession you want to stay away from. But I see my colleagues as wonderful 
wonderful, supportive peers who are eager to change and to do the best by kids. And so I'm proud to be in meetings with them, to be at the legislature with them, to be advocating for the needs of kids. I'm I'm so blessed to be a superintendent in the state of Minnesota. I'm just really fortunate. I, I would definitely say that the leadership positions that I have held really personally fulfilling, but most important, I hope, fulfilling for my staff to follow me and for the kids. I hope that when I leave this position at North Branch that some things stay in place for a while. I know the next leader will change things as rightfully that person should, but hopefully the things that worked for kids and worked for staff will stay in place for some time. I know I was glad when I left Harding and a number of things stayed in place for for a few years, (laughs) and that makes you feel good that the work that you were doing was valued by others long after you leave. Deb has left us with the gift of her engagement with the education community of Minnesota, and we are richer for it. She's a superintendent who has used her urban and suburban experiences to provide a richer experience for her North Branch community. Her ability to connect with members of her academic community, her school community, and her professional community have given her a richer knowledge base to look at issues and help think through those issues. Her concern about equity for kids and adults is part of the underpinning of her decision-making process. She uses these many gifts in many ways, including being a member of various groups, such as the Board of Teaching, the Innovation Committee, MASA Board, and she stays involved, and she's a constant voice for the students of Minnesota. Dr. Seuss, my favorite philosopher, is back from his cabin on the lake, and he's got some words of wisdom for us today that he'd like to share. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. Thanks a lot. This is Jane Sigford. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. And thank you for listening.